Okay, we're recording, we're live, no swearing please. Obviously you can swear as much as you want because nobody can hear it, except for baby Jesus, who's judging you terribly. Um, uh, but yeah, thank you for joining me for the second of these pop-up seminars. Uh, as you know, the desire is for me to have a space to get a little bit deeper into the material that I'm exploring in my books and, and on my Facebook lives, etc. And so I'm hoping that you will not just sign up for one of these, but potentially, you know, go a whole year with me uh, and maybe more. Uh, this is the second lecture. I'm probably going to do them every every two months. I feel like every month maybe is a little bit too much, but if 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 you want them every month, you 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 know you demand it, and I will provide. Um, yet last month or last. Uh, lecture we talk about atheism it's called when atheism isn't atheistic enough and just a very brief recap um, I looked at how to be human is to live in the in-between and I talked about how we live between who we are and who we would like to be and we live between what we have and what we would like to have and I also mentioned how we live in this strange space between having to act and not knowing how to act. Um, uh, there's, there's another one that we didn't talk about, which is to do with desire, which I think is very interesting. Desire, we live in the space between um, uh, you know, getting what we want and not getting what we want. Uh, this, that, how that space works is there's a difference in desire. There is the object of desire. And there is the object cause of desire, and they're not quite the same thing. So maybe you would love to, you know, settle down, get married, have the house, have the kids, do all that when you're young. That's your object of desire. But if you get it, you can feel unhappy because you've lost the object cause of your desire. The object cause of your desire might be the, the struggle to meet the right person, the, the working hard to save up the money, that all of those things are the object cause. So when you get the object of desire, you lose the object cause of desire, and therefore you lose desire itself. Um, you know, sex works like this. You know, you've got the object of desire, you want sex with somebody, but there's the object cause of desire. It's the thing that maybe just makes you attract to them in the first place. And in a sense, the trick is you live in the in-between of these two, between the object cause of desire and the object of desire. So to be human, I was looking at is we live in this in-between. Um, we talked about how we try to avoid this. Anxiety is the experience of living in that space. Uh, and we try to avoid it by either getting what we want or you know, renouncing the world and trying to get rid of desire. We have various strategies that help us avoid this, what's called the absurd. The absurd, which is the space of the in-between. And I argue that like Christianity, I think, invites us to live into that absurd. To, uh, to be able to turn that dissatisfaction into satisfaction, to turn that, that anxiety into something productive. So that was, that was all last time. You've got access to that lecture. That's great. Today's seminar is called Beyond Belief, Christianity and the Critique of Ideology. And it will connect with some of the, the themes from last time. Um, so what I want to do is start by defining ideology. 
Um, ideology is obviously a complicated thing. There's there's whole books, uh, volumes written on the subject. There's a guy from Ireland called Terry Eagleton. He might be English, but he lives in Ireland. He wrote a very good book on ideology. But ultimately, you can think of ideology as simply the idea, the beliefs and practices that are hardwired into uh, reality itself. So an ideology is the way we act and the, and the way we think that is in a sense not contingent, but we think is connected to the way things are. An ideology is like, that's just, that's just true. My political beliefs are not opinions, they are reality. My cultural and religious beliefs, that is the way things are. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's a broad definition of ideology, that we have the truth in our system in our political, cultural, or religious idea. Now, a phrase that captures this is a phrase that's connected broadly to Descartes, which is the idea of God as guarantor of meaning. Because in a sense, religion has often um, described God as that which guarantees our, our tribal identity. God is that which guarantees our wars are right. God is the one who guarantees that our way of thinking about the world is correct. Now, of course, we don't put it that way. We might say that we agree with God. Fair enough. But, but God, in a sense, provides a meaning structure within which everything makes sense. God is the guarantee that life is meaningful, that life makes sense, that things are reasonable and rational. And the reason why this is connected with Descartes is because Descartes, um, he, he had an argument for the existence of God that connects with this. So I want to just take you on this journey. It's, I think it's kind of interesting. Most of you know that Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. Now, the reason why he said this was because he was trying to find something indubitable, something that you could build reason he was dissatisfied with the scholastic philosophical tradition with all of these obscure metaphysical ideas. And he wanted to put philosophy on a firm footing. So he engaged in this experiment of radical doubt. He began by doubting everything. So he started by going, well, the external world, what I perceive might be false. He said, you know, I, I put a stick in the water and it looks bent. I know it's not bent, but it looks bent. What if everything is misperceived? He went on to go, maybe reality itself isn't even there. Maybe this is like a dream world and there is nothing there. In fact, he said it's possible that there is some malign or malignant um, de demon, some evil entity out there in the universe whose sole mission it is to fool us about everything. I mean, it's unlikely. He's not saying this is, this is you know, the, the reality. He's just saying it's possible. Like, if we updated this, that's like saying maybe we're in a virtual reality machine, uh, you know, a, a much more sophisticated race that you know, evolved millions of years before we did. Uh, this is an experiment. This is their equivalent of an Xbox game, whatever, right? That this is possible. So Descartes says, is there anything that I can be sure of? And he says, well, hold on, if I think that I'm not thinking, right? If I think that I'm not thinking, then I'm thinking I'm not thinking. 
And if I'm thinking and I'm not thinking, I'm thinking and not thinking, therefore I'm thinking. You cannot fool me into, into thinking that I'm not thinking. Because the very act of thinking and not thinking is the act of thinking itself. Right? So he goes, okay, so this all-powerful evil demon cannot fool me there. I think, therefore I am. So that's, that was the reason for that statement. He's trying to find something that is undoubtable. Even if there is an evil demon fooling us about two plus two equaling four, etc., etc. Um, now you can play around with that because, of course, well, not of course, but you know, some philosophers have said, well, he says, "I think, therefore I am." Where's the "I" thinking thinks? So Descartes already slipped in something extra, <laughs> but you know, thinking thinks, therefore thinking is. And then he goes on to say, "Okay, well, what, what do we do next?" And he says, "Right, well." We have ideas. I, I, know, I don't just think, I have thoughts. And even if they're all false, no one can fool me into thinking I don't have them. I obviously have them. And then he says, okay, well, something greater cannot come from something lesser. This is a you know, second law of thermodynamics and all of that. That in some senses, a cat cannot think quantum mechanics, right? There's something like this. There's, there's you can only think to your own limit. Now, of course, if enough of us get together and think collectively, we can do much better than the sum of our parts. But, you know, we, we, uh, you put a stick into a fire, it can't be hotter than the fire that the stick's been put into. And so Descartes takes this idea and he says, okay, so we have a notion of God. Now, we have notions of God and goddesses, the angels and deities, but we can imagine all of that. But we have this idea of an infinite, all-powerful, transcendent being. And Descartes says, "My, that's a terrible argument." <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, but he says, "Well, you know, we couldn't have thought that because that's beyond our capability. We are finite beings. A finite being couldn't think of an infinite being. Of course, a finite being could think of like gods that are like us. But to have that sophisticated notion of God that we find in, you know, the you know the great uh, theologians or whatever, he says that idea must have been planted there. And he says, who could have planted the idea of the infinite?" Well, only something infinite. Something finite couldn't plant the idea of the infinite because that goes against the law of entropy. So he says, God must have planted it there and therefore God exists, right? Now, then from there, that's only one of his arguments, but then from there he says, well, if God is infinite, all all powerful, then that God is not going to be deceiving us. That God is going to have our best interests at heart. Therefore, the universe must be reasonable and rational. And so if we have clear and distinct ideas of the universe, then you know, we will be connecting with the divine mind. That, in a nutshell, is one of the arguments that Descartes is saying. So in this very subtly, God becomes the guarantor of meaning. God guarantees that the universe is rational, reasonable, necessary, etc., etc. And that notion you know, is, is ubiquitous within the church. Now, of course, it existed before Descartes, but Descartes says it very clearly, very distinctly, God is the guarantor of meaning. And that's why ideology functions. Ideology functions that there is something that guarantees the universe is rational, meaningful, makes sense, that we can connect with that, that we think clearly, that we think distinctly, that we can find a foundation, and what's called foundationalism and evidentialism. Foundationalism is you can find a foundation to build from, and evidentialism is you get, the more the evidence, the more you can trust. 
So, um, now this might not be God. This could be historical necessity, destiny, history. Lots of people call it different things. But it's ultimately that we can plug ourselves in to reality itself. So with this background, uh, Nietzsche comes along. And Nietzsche talks about the death of God. So it's probably helpful to think of that phrase in relation to Descartes, God as guarantor of meaning. God is that which guarantees that we can connect with reality itself, that we can penetrate the world of appearances and enter into the thing itself. Um, Nietzsche's death of God is a way of saying this idea has had its day. This idea is beginning to disintegrate, to fall apart, the death of God. I want to read uh, the parable, the death of God, and then we're going to do a little reading of it, like, a, like an interpretation of it. Um, so you might want to look this up on your computer. Okay. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and they laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? He cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How did we drink up the sea? He gave us the stones to wipe away the entire horizon. What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as those three an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine composition, decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And how shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all that the earth and the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe away this blood? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. And it goes on, I won't read the rest. So this is a very powerful parable. Um, it's beautiful. And every time I come back to it, I see new things. It, it, it reveals more. Uh, but I'm going to try and like get 
get something deep out of this, this parable that is actually continues to be poignant in the philosophical tradition. So you have this madman, so the crazy guy runs in the marketplace, he's crying out, I see God, I see God. And the first interesting thing is he's not talking to people who believe in God, he's talking to people who don't believe in God. And they laugh at him. Where are you searching? Why is God afraid of us? Is he a child? Is he emigrated? They're laughing and he smashes a lantern in their midst. And he says, Whither is God? God is dead and you've killed him. And he goes off in this huge, beautiful rant. And then eventually he goes into the churches and he says, What are the churches if not tombs of the divine? And he gets kicked out of the churches. Right. The first thing is the death of God, and it's him saying that this notion of us being able to plug ourselves into reality, no metaphysics, understand the very nature and core of existence, has died. Enlightened people don't believe in that. You know, the enlightened scientists and philosophers of the day laugh at that. They laugh at this madman who is seeking this guarantor of meaning, who is seeking something to anchor the world. But then it turns around. The madman transfixes them with his glances and he says, you've killed God and you don't even realize it. You haven't heard the thunder. The lightning is struck, but you don't realize what you've done. You don't realize what that means. The idea that we are cut off from some absolute is terrifying. So now the madman seems more sane and the sane people seem more mad. He's saying, you have no understanding. You're walking around this marketplace and you don't feel this in the core of your being. This is a devastating thing. This is nihilism. And Nietzsche, his whole project was to overcome nihilism. But this is the nihilistic moment. The moment where you go, oh my goodness, are we cut off from all need? Is, is, is basically nothingness what waits for us, what we came from and what we are returning to. This is what the madman is proclaiming. Um, and yes, and the, the churches are the, the, the places of the death of God. But interestingly then, he's attacking not believers, but the humanists and the atheists of the day. Something we talked about at the last seminar, he's saying, you have not realized the consequences of this. You understand it consciously, but you haven't embraced it unconsciously. So elsewhere, he says, after the Buddha died, a shadow of the Buddha remained on a cave wall for hundreds of years. He says, we must not only get rid of God, but also the shadow of God. So the death of God is the name for the end of ideology, right? But... In Nietzsche's famous death of God, he's saying that we can forget about ideology in our head and believe that we are cut off from that, and yet not realize the consequences in our lives. We continue to believe it. This is Nietzsche's critique of humanism, atheism, where he says, you say you don't believe, but you do. You say you don't believe. Like in my example I've used before is someone thinks that a duvet cover, and they know that it doesn't protect them from a knife attack doesn't make you invisible to an intruder. But then if we hear a noise in the house, we act as if it does, right? We don't believe it, but we act as though it is. We are not, we're not over it. Um, this is Freud's idea of you know, the unconscious. And Lacan comes along and he says, yes, 
The atheist cry is not God is dead, but God is unconscious. That God, that God's guarantor of meaning, the idea that we have the answer, we have the truth, might die in our consciousness, but it can continue to exist in us unconsciously, continue to, to do its work. There was actually a study done recently, um, I think it was in Finland, where they got a group of atheists and a group of theists, and they got them to say 14 statements, uh, neg 14 negative statements, 14 positive statements, and 14 neutral statements. So a negative statement would be something like, I hope that God destroys my entire family in a fire. And a neutral statement would be, glasses help you see better. And a positive statement would be, I pray God would bless my family, right? Now, basically what they find is they find that the stress levels that, that, that were felt by people saying, I pray God would destroy my family in a fire, was the same whether you were a theist or an atheist. And they did all these other tests to make sure it just wasn't that you didn't like saying the words. So they had, like, I, I pray, I hope fate destroys my family, etc. So what they found is it didn't matter whether you identified as theist or atheist, it was the same level of stress, the same amount of people asked to, to take back the statement said, oh, I don't really mean that because they got the opportunity to do that. Now, what does that say? Well, the, Freud understood this well before any of these tests, is that we think we're done with a certain superstitious notion, but it's not done with us. Like, you'd hear this and think, oh, well, the theists are more consistent, but I don't really think they are, because if you're a theist, but you believe that you know, God's going to kill your whole family in a fire just because you set up as part of a sociological test, I don't think that's a very consistent, you know, way of thinking about God. You know, that's kind of crazy. God sitting there going, oh, well, I mean, it's a bit crazy, but if you want me to kill your entire family in a fire, then, you know, you, you ask for it, right? So regardless, none of them would have believed in that superstitious notion of the divine. Uh, but it seemed like it was ubiquitous within them. So this is what, this is what the community says, right? So you might think, you know, the, the enlightened humanist, uh, of the day, I think, oh, I've given all of that up, but they haven't experienced the existential trauma that's connected with giving that up. They haven't went, gone into that dark night of the soul. They haven't entered that cloud of unknowing. Um, this is, of course, the structure I talked about before, where someone doesn't believe in the tooth fairy, but as long as their kid does, they don't experience the trauma of the belief. Right? They they're able to consciously not believe something and yet it continues to function within them. Magical thinking continues to happen. Right? So that's what becoming by God is unconscious where he's saying ideology continues to function at an unconscious level even when you know enlightened people say, oh I've given up on that. In the church it's obviously the person says I don't believe in hell anymore. Does that mean I'm going to go there? Right? where they don't believe in it in their heads, but actually there's still this fear that they're going to be there. My friend Elliot Morgan's a comedian, and he has a joke that says, I grew up in Florida, I don't believe in God anymore, so the only thing I'm certain of is that I'm going to go to hell. Right? In other words, it's in him more than, more than his consciousness. Um, okay, so this is basically the idea that it's very hard for us to actually embrace a radical, Kind of like subtraction from the idea that there is you know a world of ultimate meaning that we can connect ourselves to 
even if we think we've given that up. Some of us don't want to and we believe in that, but some of us go like, oh yeah, I don't really believe that. Um, and yet we still act as if it is. Um, so that, that's Nietzsche's thing. So that, you know, you've got your chosen people. You know, the chosen people now are the Europeans, not you know, the people of God. You've got your mission, which is to bring European values to the world. It might not be to evangelize everybody. You've got your holy city, your utopia, um, you know, where we're all playing cricket and whatever. So these, you, we still have these, these kind of absolutes. Don't think that you escape them. You've just kicked one thing off the throne and you replace it with another. The, the issue is to get rid of the throne itself. Okay, so, so up until now, if you've been following me, like ideology is kind of like get God as the guarantor of me. There's something, whether it's destiny, historical necessity, God, that justifies the world. It's, it's rational, it's sensible, we can connect with that. The death of God is the word that is given to the loss of that. Uh, but God is unconscious, is the phrase that Lacan uses to say, although we may have killed that up in our minds, it remains active in our being. Yeah, it remains active in us. This is the Freudian insight that if you've lived all your life to please your father and then your father dies, you know your father's died, but you can still try to please him. It can be even worse because now there's no father who's there to actually tell you not to do it. So, you know your father has died, but, but there is an internal father within you that still is making demands on you, and you're still trying to please, or you're still trying to rebel against, and that hasn't died. So in psychoanalysis, there's this idea that not, you have to just realize the father has died. The father inside you has to realize that he's dead. And this is part of what psychoanalysis does, is that it, for neurotics or whatever, it helps you realize that that internal other um, doesn't need to control you. It desubstantializes that, allows you to have more freedom from that voice that you internalize. That's like ideology. Okay, so what has all this got to do with Christianity? Um, well, interestingly, um, the crucifixion has this interesting moment. You think God's character in me. The crucifixion, you read of this moment where Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, philosophically speaking, this is the moment when God experiences the loss of God. Right? Where God, you know, he's dying, experiences the gap with, with God. So, interestingly, that means that at the moment we experience existentially the loss of God as guarantee of meaning, the loss of that, you are actually experiencing the crucifixion. That you're experiencing, in a sense, something of what Christ, what, what's caught in that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that Christ cries out. You, it's not like in, in other religions, even, whatever we think, either this the sense of separation from the divine is either evil and bad, or a temptation, or just a necessary part of being human. But in Christianity, it's seen as being in the heart of Christianity itself. So it's not simply, it's not something evil, or it's not something to try to avoid or ignore or even tolerate. The moment that you experience the loss of the divine, the moment you experience the radical contingency of existence, the, the subtraction from some connection to an overall meaning is the moment that you experience 
the crucifixion event at a symbolic level. And if it wasn't clear enough, you have connected with that the moment when the temple curtain rips in two and you see inside the Holy of Holies where God dwells, where the absolute is, where the guarantor of meaning is, and there's nothing there, it's just an empty room. The temple curtain rips and it's like, oh, on the other side, there's nothing there. This could be described as the nihilistic movement of Christianity. It's the moment like the madman, the ma where the madman, I see God, I see God. The madman has experienced existentially this separation from meaning that the rest of the people around him haven't experienced. Everybody else in the marketplace is getting on with life as usual. These are the scientists, the philosophers, and the enlightened humanists of the day for Nietzsche, but they don't realize what, what's happened. For Nietzsche, this experience of the loss of our connection with the real or with, with, with reality itself is, is traumatic. And that's why, in a sense, the madman and Christ have such a close connection. This is part of why atheism for that, so we can, can experience something of that cry in our own being. Temple curtain rips, the room is empty. Um, now, what's key here is when you're a Christian, young Christian, and you're, say, start to question whether Christianity works, whether Christianity connects you with, with the truth, the truth of politics, religion, and culture. You generally have two options. One is you repress those doubts and you just pretend you didn't have them and you kind of try to you know, work. Uh, you try to read all the books, pray more, do all the conferences, protect yourself from that question. Or you give it up and you potentially take on something else, whether you change religions or you leave religion entirely or you take up some philosophy, whatever it is, right? But that's not what happens on the crucifixion. Those are not the two options. Like if this is a choose your adventure, little Johnny's in the prayer meeting, little Johnny suddenly thinks, is this all crap, right? Do you turn to page 63 and repress, or do you turn to page 84 and walk out of the prayer meeting? Right? Those are like the two options we think of. But the Christianity, I would argue that actually the, the, the third option is that is Christianity. That experience of the subtraction from the world of meaning is the very moment that you experience the crucifixion event, the loss of meaning existentially. And it's not intellectual. That's the interesting thing. God is addressing God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this isn't some sort of conscious, abstract atheism. This is existential atheism, as in I feel the loss of this in my being. It's not intellectual at all. It's this I suddenly feel like the, the, the like what Nietzsche says, like this, the earth has been loose to be the sun. We're tumbling. I feel like I'm going left, right, up, down. There is no up and down anymore. I feel like I've been subtracted from everything. Like, why do I think that's central to conversion? Crucifixion, of course, conversion, because conversion is the name given to the entering into crucifixion and resurrection. Well, I want to just very briefly look at my conversion. I had a very standard conversion. When I was 17. I was coming out of Gremlins 2 and uh, you know, with a pile of friends, and there were all these people doing Jesus dramas. Right? They, they're doing the pagan sandwich, where you do a silly drama, and you have a group of Christians, and then the pagans come in, and then the group of Christians come in behind them. 
you kind of create a pagan sandwich, and then you kind of leave. So I, call, I was calling the pagan sandwich, and um, but uh, most of my friends left. One of my friends, you know, he had this kind of conversion moment. Uh, a, a week or two later, I did. I won't get into what happened, but but this event changed everything. So religious experience is not something that changed, that it's not an experience of something. It's what transforms your experience of everything. So I didn't really experience anything, but everything changed. And the way I described it at the time is I went home to my parents and I said to them, I'm no longer your son. It's that big dramatic thing on a Sunday afternoon. I'm not your son anymore. I, I, something has happened, I'm cut adrift. I got rid of all my stuff and I stopped going to tech where I was doing a computer studies course. Now, this was like me as a 17-year-old who didn't understand very much. This is just what happened. And since then, I've tried to reflect on what those things mean. And in a sense, I think what was happening was when I said to my parents, I'm not your son. And of course, you know, I, I apologize eventually and, you know, articulate it differently. But what I was simply trying to say terribly is I feel like I've been subtracted from the political and cultural and religious system that I was brought up in. Now, I didn't grow up in a religious family, but I, was, but I had a political, cultural, religious system. And when I said, I'm no longer your son, it, just, it was just my attempt to go, oh my goodness, I feel like that's all being stripped away from me. And when I got rid of all the stuff that I owned, it was all aspirational. I told you what I valued. I told you what I, what I thought was good and good and beautiful. And I just felt subtracted from all of that. So I didn't want it anymore, not because of some like, unanimous moral St. Francis of Assisi move. It was just like, this stuff is utterly irrelevant. And when I stopped going to tech, that, I was doing computer studies. That was where my life was going, you know. And it just felt like I was subtracted from that economic world, the world where I had to go get a job, do all of this stuff, and just, you know, just go on these train tracks that we all had to go on. So in a sense, my conversion was not an addition. There was nothing added to me. It wasn't a set of beliefs. Now that happened later very quickly. You know, got part of the church and added lots of crazy things. But the initial religious experience was not an experience of addition. It was an experience of subtraction. I felt subtracted from the ideological constellation that I grew up in. This is what crucifixion means. To be crucified was to be cursed with God, so outside the religious system, to be no longer a citizen, so out of the political system, and to be crucified outside the city, to be a culturally and nobody and nothing. Right? So crucifixion was a form of radical subtraction. Um, so when I think about my own conversion, and I reflect on biblical tradition and all of this stuff, I see it as going, okay, what if at the heart of Christianity is this nihilistic moment? A nihilistic moment where we experience the death of God, not intellectually, but actually in our, in our being, in the core of our, our unconscious. We experience this. We experience that there is no guarantee or meaning that we just connect to. But... Then there is a, another move after that. Uh, that. The next move, which is what the madman doesn't get to in this parable, because he's like freaking out, still trying to seek God, is the move in which you find God not as the guarantor of meaning, but rather as the reality you participate in, in the act of life and the act of love itself. 
So you are detached from the sense of I have the truth and I know the answer and I did that. And you know, I can know God's will and then I can just do what I'm supposed to do. Which we all want. We all want someone, whether it's a leader, whether it's a you know a tarot card reader, whether it's a, a religious prophet, to tell us what we should do. We can just obey it. We know what we have to do and we can go to sleep at night, right? Um, but this is in a sense going, okay, what if we're cast adrift? What if we're, we have to embrace radical unknowing? Uh, we have to embrace the absurdity of existence from the last seminar. And actually, in that, as we love and as we care for others, not knowing what we should do, not having any guarantees, that's how we find God. God is not an object that we love. God is found in the act of love itself. Um, now, this, you know, I've made a move there which, you know, is illegitimate because I, mean, I needed the next seminar is probably going to be on because I've suddenly gone, like, we're cast adrift, we're, we're out of touch of everything, and now we just give ourselves to our neighbor in love, and there we find God. But, you know, why do we give ourselves to our neighbor in love? Maybe we'll just be selfish, live for ourselves, and, and accumulate as much as possible. And, and, and screw everybody else, right? That's a possibility. Um, what's interesting is we, we often ask the question, what should I do? You know, what, is it, what is it to be moral? What's the moral act? Right? But actually the first question is not what is the moral act, but how do we become moral subjects? What I mean by that is I point a gun at your head, and I tell you to give money to the poor. The one thing we can agree on is that's not a moral act. You know, you're doing it because there's a gun in your head, right? So if you're if you're coerced, if you're if you've got some higher power, then you're trying to get rewards and punishments. That's not really ethical behavior. If you do the good for no other reason than that comes to good, then that's an ethical move. Or if you don't, but you freely choose that, that's you being unethical. But the fact is, you're an ethical subject. You're existing in the world. Uh, without a, a desire for heaven or a fear of hell. This is beautifully captured in an Islamic parable where a woman is carrying fire and water everywhere she goes. And when she's asked why she carries fire and water, she says, I carry fire to burn up heaven and water to extinguish hell so that we do the good for no other reason than because it's the good. Right? So the, the idea, and that's, that's, the mystics talk about this as well, you know, that, that the, the, the ethical move is a move about why. You do it because it's like, why does a heart beat? Why does a bird sing? Yeah. In, in existential terms, it simply means you accept your freedom. You accept that you're an ethical creature that has to make decisions yourself without any guarantee that what you're doing is right, without any guarantee that something is like making sure that everything's good. You're acting in that space of unknowing. That's kind of the paratheological understanding or notion of conversion and as it stands now and, and why Christianity can be seen as a critique of ideology itself. Because in Christianity, you experience that, that rupture and you live within it. And I think the patron saint of this, if you want to understand who, is it's, it's, it's Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, uh, she had the call when she was like, I 
can't remember what age she was, maybe 13, she felt this call to give up everything, to give her life to the uh, convents and to give her life to people, the people in Kilcullen. But then in her 30s, she had what she said was the call within the call. And around that time, or at that time, she lost her sense of God. She didn't intellectually lose it. She continued to believe in her head, but she felt the divine absence. She felt that existential cry of Christ on the cross. But then, she didn't just walk away. She continued to do what she did. And when people asked why, she said that that's how she found God. Not in her inner experience, but rather in the face of the other. And interestingly, she wanted her diaries burned. And people thought, why does she want her diaries burned? Is there some crazy secret in there? Is she having sex with the Pope? Or is she had, like the biggest collection of Ferraris or whatever, right? And of course, there's, there's none of that. So then people thought the thing she didn't want revealed was her doubt, her unknowing, her, her existential loss of the divine. But no, she's kind of clear on it. She says, like, you want to know where God is? Don't look at my inner experience. Look at what the orphanage is that we built. Look at the children who have been cared for. Like if, if, you, if you read my diaries to find God, you'll never find anything. You'll just find my inner experience. You'll, you'll idolatrize inner experience. No, Christianity is material. It's in the love of the other. So Mother Teresa has this mood where she gives up everything for God. Then she gives up everything, including God. And the third move is she finds God in the material act of love itself. And this, if I can remember correctly, what I wrote, I wrote in one of my books, is like there's Jesus in the, um, uh, where is it? So there's the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a point where there's a point where Jesus, well, I suppose it's maybe the baptism, I can't remember, where Jesus gives up everything for God. And then on the cross, oh yeah, when the Garden of Gethsemane, God gives, Jesus gives up everything for God, willing to go to death. Then on the cross, God gives up everything, including God, or loses everything, including God. Right? That's the crucifixion. And then resurrection, God is found in the act of life itself, which is the epoch of the Holy Ghost. The epoch of the Holy Ghost is the desubstantialized divine in the community of believers who care for those who um, are needed, who need care, who, who feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give water to those who are thirsty, visit those who are in prison, stand up for those who are being oppressed, being uh, uh, condemned, being put behind walls, being refused entry to so that, that is the way to encounter the divine. All right, uh, there was, there's a lot there, and I don't know, hopefully it kind of made sense a little bit. People have been writing questions, so I'm gonna have a little look at the questions. Please do write if you have a comment or a question to make. Um, let me see, let me start. Da -da -da. Okay, Ronnie says, in the last session, we talked about how we escape our present reality in pursuit of peace or joy. Yep, so we, we um, you know, our, our present life is kind of maybe crappy, we're not enjoying it. Our present life is like a waiting room. And so we, we, we pursue, yep, uh, peace or joy. Eckhart Tolle, who I believe leans more towards Buddhism, yep, would describe the ego as what we transcend to experience presence in the here and now. Uh, beyond our ego. Would you describe this as beneficial in trying to escape our present reality? Uh, I may not be fully understanding what he is fully um, experiencing. So let me see that, sorry. Uh, would, he would describe the ego as 
what we transcend to experience presence in the here and now beyond our ego. Um, okay, yeah, so obviously the Buddhist thing is, uh, you know, the ego is a type of fiction. You, uh, what did you say? We transcend the ego, the experience. So yeah, so there is, there are westernized Buddhism anyway, has this idea that uh, we can find peace in, in giving up our ego, our sense of self, and kind of like removing ourselves from the frenetic uh, move of capitalism and consumption. Um, and we can find some sort of harmony there. I mean, I'm close. I, I agree with Buddhist thinking in the sense that the ego is an illusion, right? I mean, the, the psychotic is the one who knows that, because the psychotic is the one whose ego is always on threat, who's always having out of body experiences, who's you know, he doesn't know whether they're inside or outside their body at times. Um, it's just a necessary illusion. Uh, you know, it's uh, the neurotic is the one who really experiences the ego. But, so yeah, I, I agree, the ego is a type of illusion. Um, the, the difference I have with westernized Buddhism, and by the way, I like Zen Buddhism a lot, of that, the little I know of it. The difference I have, with, the problem I have with some western Buddhism is not their their understanding of the ego or anything like that. It's just that the problem for me is not desire. The problem is, is a type of death drive, type of wrong type of desire. So um, I, I, I want to kind of like, I want to argue that that goes in a peace and harmony that, that, that comes from this embracing the here and now and letting go of the ego um, is itself an attempt to escape in the the, the reality of antagonism in life. I don't know if that makes any sense. I guess I'm just, like psychoanalysis, their reading of it is the peace and harmony comes from realizing that there's a lack of peace and harmony, right? Peace and harmony comes from making peace with our dissatisfaction, with not even making peace with it, but with enjoying it, making it work for us, uh, doing something with it, making it into a fuel. Um, that's why I said about the, the difference between object of desire and object cause of desire. The problem, what one has to do is live in between those, never quite getting what you want, um, so that you can maintain your desire in a healthy way. So I, I don't know if that helps at all. I don't want to get too much into the Buddhist dialogue because I have to be sitting with a Buddhist to do it. Um, so anonymous viewers, please ask everyone to mute their microphones or you should be able to mute them as the organizers. There's a lot of background noise. I'm so sorry. I wish I'd seen that earlier. I'm looking to see if I can do that. Uh, um, it might be too late now. I'll do that next time. I'm so sorry, Mr. Anonymous and Mrs. Anonymous. Um, I can't hear it because my volume doesn't actually work on my computer. Uh, Yes, Jürgen says, could following Jesus, taking up your cross, be the same as experience here in embracing that there is no God to rescue and fix? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm arguing, is that not that God does not exist, but that notion of God as guarantor of meaning is an idol. That's kind of the idea. So this is not actually, this is not atheism in the sense that God doesn't exist. Intellectually, you may believe in God or you may not. This is just the death of a certain type of God. God is guarantor of meaning. Um, in philosophy, this is called ontotheology. God is this object that guarantees that we are right, or we can be right if we do the right things. This God who, uh, who we connect with, 
This is the death of that God, so that a different understanding of God can arise. God as the death dimension of reality itself. God found in the act of love itself. It all sounds radical until you read the New Testament. You read the post-resurrection God, where it says, those who love know God, for God is love. In the book of the says at first John, and those who do not love do not know God. I mean that that's you know, a very, maybe somebody will say, well, that's only one statement, so we can't build too much on it, but it does capture this. Those who love know God. Now, that is not the kind of knowledge, like, you can, you can know that two plus two equals four and not love. You can know that it's sunny outside and not love. You can be an asshole and know that it's sunny outside. Your knowledge has nothing to do with love, right? But this notion of God is that actually, if you don't love whatever you say intellectually, you do not know God to know us and you do not participate in, you do not have that connection at all. But if you do love, you do. And in fact, Jesus, when he says, the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's interesting is that's, the, that's what everybody believed, right? So when he's asked what's the greatest commandment, he, thought, he says what everybody believes. It's like, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If he'd stop there, that would be fine. Everyone would go, right, we got the right answer. That was a test, you got the right answer. But then he said, oh, but the second's like it. In other words, he said, you can't just have one. If you want to know what, you want to live what that's like, love, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Which is saying, these are identical. If you saw them walking down the road, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. That's the innovation. So he uses the tradition and then he innovates the tradition. And the innovation is saying, you want to know what that one looks like. It looks like, you know, you love your neighbor. So this death of God, Jürgen, you know, Jürgen's mentioning this, picking up your cross, is, I think, the death of what uh, Bonhoeffer called the deus ex machina God. The God you wheel into existence to fix something, to answer a question. Uh, God is nightlight. God is a, is a type of nightlight that helps you sleep at night. It doesn't change your life, it doesn't transform you, it doesn't make you more loving, but helps you with your anxiety, or helps hide your anxiety. So yeah, that's, that's that's the type of death of God I'm talking about in these lectures. Yeah, uh, Angela says, if God is not the guarantor of meaning, but God is love, and meaning is fine and experiencing love, then God is still the guarantor of meaning. <laughs> yes, in a sense, right, but it's a very different type of meaning. Right? If you've heard me talk about love before, love is not meaningful. Love renders the world meaningful. So if you believe the world is meaningless, but you love, you cannot help but experience it as meaningful. And if you believe the world is meaningful but you don't love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningless. So in a sense, love isn't the guarantor of meaning. Love is what renders meaning. It renders your world meaning, whatever intellectually you think. That's the crazy thing about it. I mean, the other thing about love is love does not exist. In the sense that to exist means to stand out. Philosophically, to exist means you can touch it, you can taste it, you can see it, you can feel it. But love calls everything into existence. And by that I mean the world is full of things, but you don't really see them. You know, and you, you, you encounter a person, but merely as an object to help you in an exchange. You know, you pay for a restaurant meal and someone's making it. They're, they're, not, they're not subjects to you, they're just they're things. But you see someone you love, they stand out from everybody else as a subject. They are called into existence, um, not as a mere object, a mere mechanism of consumerism. They are an individual 
with the subjective reality. And the other thing is love is not sublime, but love says that person in front of you is sublime, that person in front of you is wonderful. And then here's the thing that really pickles the brain, right? So love does not exist, love is not sublime, love is not meaningful. Until you forget about love as an object and engage in love, and then it seems like the most preeminently meaningful, existing, and sublime of all things. So, you know, that's why, that's why I think God is love means. God is love crazily means that you give up the idea of God as an object that you love, but in the act of love itself, you find yourself at the heart of the divine and standing alongside the prophets. Uh, Jerry says, if God isn't involved in directing the process of our lives, then why do we pray? I'm still trying to work this out yet. Yes, what is interestingly, Bonhoeffer's critique of the Deus Ex Machina is that God is involved in our lives at different times, right? God is involved when things go wrong. God is involved when there's an earthquake or when you lose somebody, God comes in, right? But for Bonhoeffer, the problem with that God is that God is not involved enough, right? The Deus Ex Machina is, have you seen the film Inception? Not Inception, that we'll go to that in a second. Dallas. Remember the, remember the soap opera Dallas, right? Well, in season six of, of, so, of, of Dallas, I think it was season six, uh, Bobby Ewing, right? Bobby Ewing, he was the heartthrob. Everyone loved Bobby Ewing, right? They killed him off. And then they had a whole season where he was dead. But then their, their viewing numbers dropped, right? So they had to bring him back. So what they did is, it's a classic movie, it was brilliant. Um, they said the whole of the last season was just a dream sequence. So the very last episode, um, his ex-wife, his, his widow, wakes up, hears the shower, walks in, and there he is having a shower. And she realizes she just dreamed it all. The whole of the last season, everything that happened, just a dream. Right? That is a deus ex machina, because deus ex machina comes from a Greek um, strategy that bad writers used when they have a problem. So they were writing a play, oh, and this figure dies off, and then halfway through the play they go, you know what, we'd love to have them back. So they, they literally say, and the angel comes down and, and resurrects. Right? That's a deus ex machina. And literally, it was, a, it was a machine that they lowered from, you probably know this, it's a machine they lowered into the stage who would do something, and then they would take away. So there's literally like, if you, I don't know, if uh, they do this in America, like in nativity, where there's a, a child who's a star, and they wheel the child, you know, down, and then they get up. It's kind of like that. This person is there. They do a magic spell, and they weave the light. Like, compare, contrast that with insurrection or inception. In inception, dreaming is not a Deus Ex Machina. It's inherent to the narrative itself. Dreaming is how the whole thing is operating. Right. That's what Bonhoeffer was saying. But when Bonhoeffer says God is Deus Ex Machina, he said. The God of the traditional God that, that we see in the church is just not involved enough. God as the reality we participate in, the act of love itself, is not something that's wheeled in. It's God is part of the narrative structure of our entire lives. You know, part inherently part of our everyday engagement, from making sandwiches in the morning to you know, watching Netflix. Um, but it's a very different type of involvement. And then, then so you, you obviously it comes to your second part of your question, prayer. Well, why pray? And it's, uh, I want to answer that. I just realize that um, it might be boring for other people. If they Maybe it's not. But I, prayer is like a love letter. You write a love letter, and you think it's for another. But you learn about yourself through writing the love letter. 
So you may, you may never send it. You may read it 20 times. Because you think the love letter is for somebody else, but you're the recipient. The concept of letter always reaches its destination. In a sense, the destination is yourself. Right? So even if you don't post it, it reaches who it's supposed to reach. Prayer is a bit like that. It goes out to another. But in praying, if you pray from the core of your being, pray your, your moans and groans of your being, you find in that very prayer, you encounter and confront things within yourself you wouldn't have realized. And it transforms you and changes you. So prayer, I think, is a human thing. We all do it. Theist, atheist, agnostic, whatever. But bad prayer is where it just solidifies your idealized image of yourself. Oh, I pray for the kids in Somalia. Do you really care about the kids in Somalia? Don't you say it because you know, it makes you feel good. Or you pray, God, I don't care about the kids in Somalia. Then you go, you confront yourself. Oh, my goodness, maybe I should. <laughs> so you kind of are honest about yourself uh, in a community of grace. Who accept that, and then that can help you change. So I am a big believer in prayer as a technology of, of transformation. Yeah, but it does change how we understand the recipient of prayer and uh, you know, how that works. Um, okay, let's see. There's lots of questions. My goodness. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Okay, yeah, Ryan said, is there any place for ideology, or is the goal to do away with any and all ideology, or is it none of the above? <laughs> nice. Uh, you know me so well. It's going to be none of the above, isn't it? No, um, yeah, I, okay, and by the way, I'm answering these as if I know you guys. Some of you are watching this um, have been, you know, know, know the stuff as well or better than me. But I, I would say that you know, the issue with ideology is not having an idea and not having a framework for understanding the world, that's for me not ideology. It's that, that that framework is connected into reality itself. That's the problem. So in a sense, it's desubstantializing ideology, which means we do have traditions, which is good to respect. And we have university as a tradition, hospitals are a tradition. Traditions are a way of, of remembering and putting on and teaching the best things about the past, you know. So institutions are these beautiful at best. They're these can be these beautiful places that, that retain some of those beautiful insights of people before we were born. Um, but if we think that those insights are plugged into reality itself, then no innovation, no novelty, no change can happen. And they become ossified, reified, problematized. That's why, you know, I tell the Buddhist story about the old guy meditating in the temple, and there's a cat, we all know it, the cat running around, and he ties the cat to the tree during meditation. He dies, and the cycles continue to do it. And then finally the cat dies, so they go into the markets to buy another cat to tie to the tree during prayer. And then after seven generations of cat, the tree falls down, they plant a new tree, tie a seventh generation of cats to, and then of course the scholars come along and write learned treaties by the symbolic significance of tying cats to trees during meditation. So the, the idea is that that's worst, the tradition ossifies, and that's ideology. But yeah, the opposite, opposite is not that a radical contingency where we don't know anything and can't act. Somehow I think it's by desubstantializing our tradition enough so that we can innovate within it and change it. So yeah, that, that's how I define ideology, not so much the idea of having a position, political, cultural, religious positions, we all have that. There is not, there's no outside of that, but rather it's always reminding ourselves that that 
um, needs to be challenged in relation to new situations, um, in relation to new oppressions and new problems. Um, Okay, Dan saying the audio cut out right after you spoke about the either or choose your adventure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> repression versus acceptance. You talked about a third way of Christianity that includes the resurrection um, that we will not have a guarantee. Can you repeat, expand? Yes, and that is central. Like, um, even if you've heard this, it's good to repeat it. The, the idea is not that you, whenever you start to question your Christianity, you know, your religious Christianity, that you either like repress that or that you walk away from it. Because if you walk away from it, you can still retain the structure. So the new set of beliefs are held in the same way. So some people hold humanism as an insight into reality itself. And it becomes just another way of saying we are plugged in to the real and reality and our political and cultural ideas are, like, are the way things are. The third move is the idea that, that you, you, you don't have to, because you can do this in any system, but you stay within Christianity and you experience the loss of it within yourself, just like Christ experiences the loss of God. God experiences the loss of God. You're inside Christianity, and Christianity autumn deconstructs within you. So you, you experience the existential, nihilistic kind of loss of everything. You stick within that. You don't simply move to some other system of belief. You stay within the auto-deconstructive loss. And in doing that, I think you touch on the radical, subversive, scandalous core of Christianity. You know, that, that moment of deconstruction. Uh, so it's not, it's not that you deconstruct Christianity. Christianity is the deconstruction itself. It's not that you experience the loss of your faith. Your faith is the experience of loss itself. Faith is the embrace of the absurd, the living into that, being able to find freedom within that. Um, okay. Oh yeah, so yeah, Caleb said, is the crucifixion moment the death of God or the death of my idea of God and is there a difference? You know, I always am wary of making a difference because as soon as you make the difference, it's like I have my idea of God and then there's God beyond my idea of God. But then that's also an idea of God. <laughs> so you're, you're caught within this impossible thing to break out of. That's kind of the Kant. Kant was the guy that there's the phenomenal world and the noonable world. But then Hegel said, well, even in the noonable world, the world outside of what you understand, that, that understanding is itself you know, part of your thinking. So it's difficult to make that distinction without very subtly creating a new idol. Right? But it is, I, I think it's, but I think it is a good way to think about it. Like this is the breakdown of a certain way of thinking about the divine. A certain, there's not even a certain way of thinking about the divine. That's the wrong sense. It's a certain way of being in the world that we feel connected with. You know, everything we know is certainly in satisfaction. We're connected in with reality itself. So it's, it's the breakdown of that, and it's the discovery of God that's in doubt in fracturedness, in dissatisfaction, in the brokenness itself, in the engagement uh, with the world, taking responsibility for our lives, that's, that's where we find God. So, it, yeah, in one sense I want to say, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complete breakdown of our understanding of God, but I think it's a universal, like I think that from what I can tell um, from some of these things, 
like a red light bulb experiment. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. We are, we are prone to a religious notion of God as in we are prone to thinking that we have a direct red hot phone, red lines of God. Right? We're prone to thinking that. Whether it's God or, let's say, historical necessity for Stalin or destiny for Hitler, it was the same thing. They were, they were saying, it's not us that are doing this. We are just, we are just puppets of higher principles. When I kill someone, it's not me that kills them. It's me, it's the, it's the higher principle. It's, it, I'm sacrificing my own morality for the greater good. That's why ideology can function. You put your responsibility on something <coughs> This is saying you cannot do that. You have to take responsibility yourself. Um, okay, I feel like you know, you must be exhausted. I'm feeling tired for some reason, so I don't know if it's, it's only been an hour and a bit, so I should do a little bit more. Um, but do feel free to leave and come back. You don't remember you're going to get the audio of this, so you can listen to it 20 minutes at a time. Um, Karen says, there appears to be an irony in embracing the lack of meaning and purposelessness. But then after we embrace this purposelessness, we find meaning and purpose in love. They um, appear to be at odds. If the world is meaningless, how can we embrace this if love is to be found as the ultimate meaning? Or if love is the ultimate meaning where we find God, then why and how do we fully embrace the meaninglessness? Or is it just that we experience both at different times in our lives? In which case, um, is one of these experiences more true and undergirds the other? Um, so Narni, the irony of embracing the lack of meaning and purpose, but then we find purpose in love, right? So what's, yeah, we lose. I mean, yes, this is dialectics, by the way. This doesn't make sense when you think purely cause and effect. Science is a cause and effect thing, right? And this is a problem between European thinking and actually a lot of American, British thinking. Cause and effect works very well. Uh, you hit one billiard ball, it's another cause and effect. Dialectics is the idea that there are inherent antagonisms and contradictions in concepts themselves. Cause and effect. There is this idea of the law of non-contradiction. Something cannot be A and not A at the same time. Right? So the law of non-contradiction. And so uh, you know, that, that's causing like dialectics is always saying that, that there are contradictions in being itself and life. In, and I, I covered a lot of that last last seminar actually. But so in dialectics, you're always hitting exactly what you're talking about. You're always hitting these weird things. If you lose your life and you find it, um, you're alive and yet, yet you're dead. You're dead, but yet you're alive. These are dialectics. You're always hitting the idea of like you get what you want and then it's not what you want. You don't get what you want and it is what you want. <laughs> like, dialectics is kind of, when you start getting it, it makes sense, but at first it's difficult. So this idea of yes, you give up purpose and you find purpose in giving up the purpose is a type of dialectic tension where but the purpose is different, it's a different level, right? There's, um, it's like what I said about love. Love is not meaningful in the same way that um, I think that uh, a religious perspective might be meaningful. Love is meaningful in the sense that um, existentially, I find life rich. Um, I find life something that I want to wake up to engage with. I find myself wanting to get out and meet people. So it's like a, it is a type of meaning. They put it like John Caputo says it like this: There might not be any meaning of life, but there is meaning in life. So there might not be any meaning of life, but there is meaning in life. 
Um, and I think you're right to say there's certain circularity, a certain, a certain kind of like contradiction or tension in those phrases. But in dialectics, you embrace that contradiction, and you go, "Yeah, that's that. Um, that's where the, the life, the life is." So yeah, you're, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, is not seeing Christianity as a particular ideology, not an ideology in itself. It's more, you know, yeah, I and mean, that's the thing. Like, it's difficult talking about this because anything can 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 be used to try to help us avoid confronting that cry on the cross, including the embrace of this theory, right? Because we as human beings can use anything to as a defense to protect ourselves. But what I'm trying to talk about here is just Christianity is not the intellectual belief in what I'm saying. This is what we're doing here. Is not, what we're doing here is theory. Um, I'm going to kind of argue Christianity is the existential experience of this. So actually, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe here. Um, it's whether you've entered into um, this experience of the lost ideology. So, you know, like someone, someone believes everything I believe, right? And I think that's great. And then the person beside them disagrees with everything I think, right? So I'm more likely to argue with them. I'll just be happy with the person who agrees with me. But they might agree with me for all their own reasons. They might agree with me because, you know, they think that, you know, these ideas are cool, or they might think that, um, you know, it's a way to rebel against their family or something. So at the level of what we agree, but at the level of how we believe what we believe, there's difference. Whereas the person who just doesn't agree with me, they might not agree with me for brilliant reasons. They may have read lots, thought lots, and you know, have genuine disagreement. So again, it's like, yes, anything can become an ideology. Anything can be a defense mechanism against embracing, experiencing that cry on the cross, um, that, that form of life. Uh, oh yeah, um, uh, how do I pronounce your name? A-S-E-L-T-I-N-E, Asseltine, Asseltine? Don't know where that's from, where are you from? Um, uh, it's, uh, it says, First John says, yeah, God is love. I've been wondering lately how applicable it is to flip that saying by saying love is God. Um, uh, but of course, all my pastor friends cringe at that idea. And in Ephesians 4, when it talks of the unity of the body of Christ, it seems likely to me that the purpose is not to create another exclusive group, yeah, that knows how to not get along with each other, but a system in which we learn how to have unity with all through love. And my pastor friends tell me I'm taking Jesus out of things, but I sense that I have found the exact opposite. Yeah, me too. That Christ is in and among everything. There are rocks everywhere. Yeah. How do I talk to religious people like this and say hi to Rob for me? I will do. Um, uh, okay, yes, first of all, yes. Uh, Marguerite Peretti, uh, I've just gone on focus now. Um, she says, she has this beautiful line in, in this book that says, I am, I am God, says love. I am God, says love. It's beautiful. Um, and yeah, so she, she flips this around. Um, and, and, but in terms of what you're saying, the other bit is that the idea that the unity, uh, you know, where it's not about creating new identity. I think you're absolutely right. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, those are six identity markers, right? Six things that you slot into in the time. And today we've got lots of them, but do, like if you've seen the Breakfast Club, 
know, they've got the, the nerd, the jock, uh, you know, the, the, the princess, the goth. You know, these are the tribal identities of the school, right? Now, what's interesting in The Breakfast Club is that the movie itself is about eventually them realizing that, that they transcend those identities. They are those identities, but they find a way of relating to each other beyond that. Like only for the detention. When they leave, they kind of re-enter the world of all of those tribal distinctions. But I think the Breakfast Club is a good example of what Paul's talking about. Is there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. There's neither jock nor nerd, golf nor uh, you know whatever. That, that all are one. Like Paul says, all are one in Christ. Right? Religious interpretation of that is is there's a new identity. Those six don't cut it because there's a seventh one, and you all you enter into the seventh one, right? Which is unity in Christ. But if you go with this idea, then to unify with Christ is to embrace the crucifixion, right? To embrace the crucifixion is to embrace the loss of all identity, right? So it's not a new identity. You, you, you embrace the loss of all identity. Now, what this means is, and I think there is a new exclusivity, I'll talk about what that is, that now you could be Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, right? But, so you keep those identities, you could be Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Buddhist, right? You keep those identities, but you hold on to them differently. Now you find yourself, you've got more in common with your Buddhist neighbor than you do with the person in your church. I say you're a, a Methodist, and you find yourself, I've got more in common with my Islamic neighbor, right? my Muslim neighbor, than I do with the, this person in my church, right? At the level of what? You have this, you, have, you identify with the person in your church, but at the level of how you believe, you identify with this other person. So, because you're identifying with the fact that you transcend your identities, that your identities are important, they define who you are, all of that, they're important, but also to be human is to transcend identity. This is what Jean Paul Sartre meant when he said that he saw a Parisian waiter, he was being so like a waiter, he thought he was a waiter. Right? And Sartre called it bad faith. Because he said, this waiter is not a waiter. The waiter is a waiter, but also more than a waiter. To be human is to have freedom, which means to be able to transcend the identities that we inhabit. So we have identities and they're deeply important, but to be human is to weirdly also transcend those. So connecting this with the Paulinian thing, this means that you, you have identities, but by identifying with Christ, you identify with the loss of identity. Now this means a new, a new uh, sword. You know where Jesus says, I come not to bring peace but a sword, to cut family against family, you know, brother against father, daughter against mother. This is very interesting because he doesn't say, I've come to bring a sword that cuts between tribal identities. Right? That's what we're used to. That's natural, like there's Christians, there's Buddhists, there's Muslims, right? Those are the natural cuts. That we, that we make, right? This is a cut through tribal identities, right? It's not between families, it's within families. Now what that means is, as I say, once you've had this experience where you hold on to your beliefs differently, you can feel yourself more isolated from your own community. People who hold on to your beliefs, the same beliefs as you, but they hold on to them so tightly. And God is the guarantor that those beliefs are right, okay? Mm -hmm. Once you've got beneath the cut, 
God is not the guarantor that your beliefs are right. God is found in your reconciliation and relationship with the other. So you believe the same thing as the person in your community, but, but for them, God is the guarantor that that's the correct way of seeing things. For you, that's how you swim in the world. That's your tradition, your identity. But where God is, is not the guarantor that that's correct. God is in the ability to relate to the other. So a new divide happens, but it's not a divide that you want. It's just a divide it is. Like you want to welcome everybody, but the one person who cannot come into your community is potentially the one who says, but I hold on to this as being absolutely correct. That's the one thing I wouldn't give up. So I don't know if that, if that helps to understand it, that this is not, this transcends tribal identities, but those, if your tribal identity, God is the guarantor that you're correct, then I think you haven't experienced what you're talking about, that Ephesians thing that pulling and cut, your junior Gentiles, the other female, or female. This, that's what Paul says when he says, you have as if you have not. You know, mar- you're, you're married as if not married. You have as if you don't have. It's like, you know, you have your identity, but you somehow hold it as if you don't. That's another dialectic tension. <laughs> um, okay, I'll maybe do one more, and then, and then uh, I'll let you go. Let's see. Uh, there's lots of good questions here. Uh, oh, Ryan says, where can I find the Islamic power of Lady Holy Farm Water? I read it off Shizek, actually, um, but hopefully if you just type it into Google search, you'll find it. I think I did. There's various versions of it, actually, but I think it's an original Islamic power. I think there's a Christian version, but I think it's originally Islamic. Okay, I'll grab this whole one. So I'm going through them when I ask good, that's good, that's good. Scott says, I haven't read this yet, it might not be good. Scott, it is. Um, the idea of orientation, disorientation, reorientation seems to be becoming more popular, i.e., yourself, Rob Bell, Richard Rohr, the liturgists, etc. There seems to be a building wave of momentum, particularly with the disorientation, dark night of the soul, death of God, within progressive Christian communities. Is it something new? An evolution of Christian tradition uh, has it always been in process, but now getting more momentum alive? Um, interestingly, yes, I would say that this is actually, um, so, for, so there's always this going on. Because the truth, for, for what I'm saying, and I don't know if it's the same quite as some of the other people you mentioned, but what I'm saying is that in a sense, the truth is the antagonism itself. The truth is the opening yourself up to the contingency, opening yourself up to being decentered, moving forward from within the tradition. We, and that is always happening. Every church denomination is ultimately an antagonism within existing Christianity. Every denomination is born, from what I can see, because there was a problem with what existed. Everything had ossified. And so you know the Methodists were born, or whatever the Protestants, and and so that that move, it's not that they're right. It's that in an historical moment in time, something is not working. There is a deadlock, and then something resistance movement grows up to to break the, the deadlock. And this this is a never-ending process. So like Christianity itself was not a religion; it was a, 
uh, expression of a deadlock within the religion of the day, within Judaism of the day. So Christianity was Judaism, it was Jewish, it was a Jewish sect, it now has become something else. And so in a sense, the, 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 you know, whatever happens now, questions it critiques it, opens it up, might give birth to something very, very different. And it's that kind of community. And it looks different in different communities. In a conservative community, it looks different than a liberal one. In a conservative community, questioning the literal truth of Adam and Eve might be very radical, whereas in the liberal community, it wouldn't be. Whereas in the liberal community or progressive community, moving the, changing the, litur the liturgical structure might be very uh, challenging, whereas in a conservative setting, it wouldn't be at all. You know, so, um, it's in a sense that commitment, this is what evolution is in a sense. Evolution is an antagonism of existence that can create change and difference. And this is about being the agent committed to that ongoing antagonism in wherever we are. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so in that sense, this is, I think, there's always the tradition, there's always the prophet and the priest. The priest is the protector of the tradition, and they're very important. And the prophet is the one who questions it, and they're very important. But if you get one without the other, it's disaster. That's why in Geneva, in the church where Calvin preached, this church, which is the, you know, the, the holder of the tradition, right outside, an artist has done a sculpture of Jeremiah turning shame and disgust in the church. So when you're there, you kind of go, like, where, where should I be? Should I be in the church or should I be with Jeremiah? But the kind of truth is you should be in the square, kind of like between these two figures, going between them and around them. And, and so there's, it's not like right now, you know, we got, yeah, we got the truth right here today. We finally got it. No, no if, at best, if there's something good in what we're doing at the moment, it's because in our present starkly, but we are trying to be that destabilizing agent of change. And in 500 years or 100 years, somebody's going to be doing it to us. You know, we're the new orthodoxy. Um, so just you know, not on my watch. <laughs> That's basically the answer. Um, I don't know. Hopefully, that that, that, that answered your question to, to some extent. Um, yeah. uh, and okay, Andy says, does hope have a role in Christianity? Okay, without kind of getting to my pat answer on that, I just want to say, like, I think there's two types of hope. There's the hope that everything will work out well in the end. I don't think that's hope, actually. Like, it's kind of, oh, everything's going to work out well in the end. It's not good at the moment, but it'll all be okay, you know, in the next life or whatever. Like, that, that's, that's the way we think of Christian hope. But it's a hope that doesn't really demand anything of you. It's like, yeah, at the end of the day, everything will work out. Everything will be reconciled or whatever. But then there's a different type of hope. There's a hope that your child will go to university. Now that's a hope that demands you do something. It demands that you save money, that you read to your kid, that you move to an area where you can go to a school that you think will be good for your child. That's a type of hope that actually gets you to put your shoulder in your history. I do think that Christian hope is the latter, not the former. That definitely the former dies. This notion does not allow for it's all going to work very well in the end. But it does open up the possibility of saying, we can do something concretely here and now to, to work with uh, people who are immigrants, to work with people who are homeless, to, to, to work for a better society. The weird thing about that hope is it's hope because you're going like, we can do it. But it's a hope that says, yeah, but if you sit on your ass and you do anything, then it might not happen. So yeah, that's, I, I write about that in, um, 
think it's the idolatry of God where I talk about um, the Salvation Army and this guy, Joe Hill, and I kind of go, go into detail on that. Um, okay, I keep on trying, but to do more of it, I shouldn't. Faith is, I'll do this. this is Lisa actually asked literally the last question on the thing. So, Lisa, hi, how's it going? Faith is the embrace of the absurd and finding freedom within that. That's a quote, yeah, of me, I guess. Uh, that seems to be the very an antithesis of idolatry. Yes, I think you're right. I think that's a comment, not a question, but I agree with that. And maybe you're saying it because you think I disagree, but I don't think you are. You know I agree with that. Faith is the embrace of the absurd and finding freedom within that. Yeah, this is why I say, I think I said it in the last seminar, I said, it's not that you, you can't really believe in the absurd, because the absurd is what ruptures belief. That's why you can't have an ideology of the absurd, in the sense of I, the absurd is the breakdown of ideology. It's the opening, but you can have faith in the absurd, and faith in the absurd is the belief that if we question our traditions, if we rupture ourselves, if we're decentered by the other, good things can happen, novelty can enter the world, transformation can occur, and we give ourselves to that. We give ourselves, because faith in Tillich's sense is you know, unconditional commitment. So I'm just adding to that a little bit. I mean, it's, it's in Tillich, I'd say it's slightly different from him, that it's unconditional commitment to the uh, antagonism of existence, believing that if we give ourselves to that, you know, it will transform, renew our lives. If that's where life before death exists, that's where fulfillment exists, that's where we can be satisfied with our dissatisfaction, enjoy the, the, the struggle itself, and, and, and find peace in a sense, in that lack of peace. Okay, thank you so much for tuning into this second lecture. Hopefully this recorded and you'll get an audio and a video of this. The next lecture will be maybe in six weeks, I don't know. And we'll probably say, okay, so what if we become ethical subjects, as in subjects who are able to act ethically or unethically, as in I take responsibility for my life. I take responsibility for my existence in the world. Okay, well then, then how do I actually act ethically then? What, what's the next step? How do I engage in the world? What does Christianity say about that? I'll probably want to go that direction. And then I then I want to start getting into how do we live this out in our individual lives, in our communities? What kind of practices can we engage in that help us embrace this antagonism, that help us overcome our anxieties, that help us live into this absurd in a way that is productive because it's so painful for so many of us. And, and I think that the trick is, just as I said about doubt, the doubt can be seen as so negative and bad, but there's a way we change how we perceive it and it becomes beautiful and wonderful. Many of you have experienced that, so I just want to do that with meaninglessness, <laughs> with, uh, with, with these other experiences of anxiety. Somehow change how we experience them so that they become fuel that like, help to uh, you know, enhance our lives and, and bring transformation. All right. Take care, my friend here. Says goodbye. Sign up for Atheism for Lent. And Sam, yes, like Jennifer reminds you, sign up for Atheism for Lent. I'll walk in the world. It's, a, it's more into the darkness and despair, but I'm very excited. I've got lots of really cool, reflective material for you. So, yeah, do that. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And we